0: Chapter five Part b of the Monastery by Walter Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five Part b Accordingly he took his leave of Dame Elspeth, who was confounded by the rapidity of his utterance and the doctrine he gave forth, and by no means easy on the subject of the book, which her conscience told her she should not have communicated to any one without the knowledge of its owner. Notwithstanding the haste which the monk as well as the mule made to return to better quarters than they had left at the head of Glendearg, notwithstanding the eager desire Father Philip had to be the very first who should acquaint the abbot that a copy of the book they most dreaded had been found within the Halidome, or patrimony of the Abbey, notwithstanding moreover certain feelings which induced him to hurry as fast as possible through the gloomy and evil reputed Glen, still the difficulties of the road, and the rider's want of habitude of quick motion were such that twilight came upon him ere he had nearly cleared the narrow valley it was indeed a gloomy ride the two sides of the vale were so near that at every double of the river the shadows from the western sky fell upon and totally obscured the eastern bank the thickets of wood seemed to wave with a portentous agitation of boughs and leaves and the very crags and scours seemed higher and grimmer than they had appeared to the monk while he was travelling in daylight and in company father philip was heartily rejoiced when emerging from the narrow glen he gained the open valley of the tweed which held on its majestic course from current to pool and from pool stretched away to other currents with a dignity peculiar to itself amongst the scottish rivers for whatever may have been the drought of the season, the tweed usually fills up the space between its banks, seldom leaving those extensive sheets of shingle which deform the margins of many of the celebrated Scottish streams. The monk, insensible to beauties which the age had not regarded as deserving of notice, was nevertheless, like a prudent general, pleased to find himself out of the narrow glen in which the enemy might have stolen upon him unperceived. He drew up his bridle, reduced his mule to her natural and luxurious amble, instead of the agitating and broken trot at which, to his no small inconvenience, she had hitherto proceeded, and wiping his brow gazed forth at leisure on the broad moon, which now mingling with the lights of evening was rising over field and forest, village and fortalice, and above all over the stately monastery seen far and dim amid the yellow light the worst part of the magnificent view in the monk's apprehension was that the monastery stood on the opposite side of the river and that of the many fine bridges which have since been built across that classical stream not one then existed there was however in recompense a bridge then standing which has since disappeared although its ruins may still be traced by the curious it was of a very peculiar form two strong abutments were built on either side of the river at a part where the stream was peculiarly contracted upon a rock in the centre of the current was built a solid piece of masonry constructed like the pier of a bridge and presenting like a pier an angle to the current of the stream the masonry continued solid until the pier rose to a level with the two abutments upon either side and from thence the building rose in the form of a tower the lower story of this tower consisted only of an archway, or passage, through the building, over either entrance to which hung a drawbridge with counterpoises, either of which, when dropped, connected the archway with the opposite abutment, where the farther end of the drawbridge rested. When both bridges were thus lowered, the passage over the river was complete. The bridgekeeper, who was the dependent of a neighboring baron, resided with his family in the second and third stories of the tower which, when both drawbridges were raised, formed an insulated fortalice in the midst of the river. He was entitled to a small toll or custom for the passage, concerning the amount of which disputes sometimes arose between him and the passengers. It is needless to say that the bridge ward had usually the better in these questions, since he could at pleasure detain the traveller on the opposite side, or, suffering him to pass half-way, might keep him prisoner in his tower till they were agreed on the rate of pontage footnote a bridge of the very peculiar construction described in the text actually existed at a small hamlet about a mile and a half above melrose called from the circumstance bridge end it is thus noticed in gordon's eiter Septentrional. in another journey through the south parts of scotland about a mile and a half from melrose in the shire of teviotdale i saw the remains of a curious bridge over the river Tweed consisting of three octangular pillars or rather towers standing within the water without any arches to join them the middle one which is the most entire has a door towards the north and i suppose another opposite one toward the south which i could not see without crossing the water in the middle of this tower is a projection or cornice surrounding it the whole is hollow from the door upwards and now open at the top near which is a small window i was informed that not long ago a countryman and his family lived in this tower and got his livelihood by laying out planks from pillar to pillar and conveying passengers over the river whether this be ancient or modern i know not but as it is singular in its kind i have thought fit to exhibit it the vestiges of this uncommon species of bridge still exist and the author has often seen the foundations of the columns when drifting down the tweed at night for the purpose of killing salmon by torchlight. Mr John Mercer of Bridge End recollects that about fifty years ago the pillars were visible above water, and the late Mr David Kyle of the George Inn Melrose told the author that he saw a stone taken from the river bearing this inscription I, Sir John Pringle a Palmer Steed, given hundred marcus of goud reed, to help to big my brig o'er tweed. Pringle of Galashiels, afterwards of Whitbank, was the baron to whom the bridge belonged. End footnote. But it was most frequently with the monks of St. Mary's that the warder had to dispute his perquisites. These holy men insisted for, and at length obtained, a right of gratuitous passage to themselves, greatly to the discontent of the bridge-keeper. But when they demanded the same immunity for the numerous pilgrims who visited the shrine, the bridge-keeper waxed restive, and was supported by his lord in his resistance. The controversy grew animated on both sides. The abbot menaced excommunication, and the keeper of the bridge, though unable to retaliate in kind, yet made each individual monk who had to cross and recross the river, endure a sort of purgatory, ere he would accommodate them with a passage. This was a great inconvenience, and would have proved a more serious one but that the river was fordable for man and horse in ordinary weather. It was a fine moonlight night, as we have already said, when Father Philip approached this bridge, the singular construction of which gives a curious idea of the insecurity of the times. The river was not in flood, but it was above its ordinary level. A heavy water, as it is called in that country, through which the monk had no particular inclination to ride if he could manage the matter better peter my good friend cried the sacristan raising his voice my very excellent friend peter be so kind as to lower the drawbridge peter i say dost thou not hear it is thy gossip father philip who calls thee peter heard him perfectly well and saw him into the bargain but as he had considered the sacristan as peculiarly his enemy in his dispute with the convent, he went quietly to bed, after reconnoitering the monk through his loophole, observing to his wife that riding the water in a moonlight night would do the sacristan no harm, and would teach him the value of a brig, the neist time, on whilk a man might pass high and dry, winter and summer, flood and ebb after exhausting his voice in entreaties and threats which were equally unattended to by peter of the brig as he was called father philip at length moved down the river to take the ordinary ford at the head of the next stream cursing the rustic obstinacy of peter he began nevertheless to persuade himself that the passage of the river by the ford was not only safe but pleasant the banks and scattered trees were so beautifully reflected from the bosom of the dark stream the whole cool and delicious picture formed so pleasing a contrast to his late agitation to the warmth occasioned by his vain endeavours to move the relentless porter of the bridge that the result was rather agreeable than otherwise as father philip came close to the water's edge at the spot where he was to enter it there sat a female under a large broken scathed oak tree or rather under the remains of such a tree weeping wringing her hands, and looking earnestly on the current of the river. The monk was struck with astonishment to see a female there at that time of night. But he was in all honest service, and, if a step farther, I put it upon his own conscience, a devoted squire of dames. After observing the maiden for a moment, although she seemed to take no notice of his presence, he was moved by her distress, and willing to offer his assistance. "'Damsel,' said he, "'thou seemest in no ordinary distress.' peradventure like myself thou hast been refused passage at the bridge by the churlish keeper and thy crossing may concern thee either for performance of a vow or some other weighty charge the maiden uttered some inarticulate sounds looked at the river and then in the face of the sacristan it struck father philip at that instant that a highland chief of distinction had been for some time expected to pay his vows at the shrine of st mary's and that possibly this fair maiden might be one of his family Travelling alone for accomplishment of a vow, or left behind by some accident, to whom, "'therefore, it would be but right and prudent to use every civility in his power, "'especially as she seemed unacquainted with the lowland tongue. Such, at least, "'was the only motive the sacristan was ever known to assign for his courtesy. If there was "'any other, I once more refer to his own conscience.' To express himself by signs, the common language of all nations, the cautious sacristan first pointed to the river, then to his mule's crupper, and then made, as gracefully as he could, a sign to induce the fair solitary to mount behind him. She seemed to understand his meaning, for she rose up as if to accept his offer, and while the good monk, who as we have hinted was no great cavalier, laboured with the pressure of the right leg and the use of the left rein, to place his mule with her side to the bank in such a position, that the lady might mount with ease. She rose from the ground with rather portentous activity, and at one bound sate behind the monk upon the animal, much the firmer rider of the two. The mule by no means seemed to approve of this double burden. She bounded, bolted, and would soon have thrown Father Philip over her head, had not the maiden with a firm hand detained him in the saddle. At last the restive brute changed her humour— and from refusing to budge off the spot, suddenly stretched her nose homeward, and dashed into the ford as fast as she could scamper. A new terror now invaded the monk's mind. The ford seemed unusually deep. The water eddied off in strong ripple from the counter of the mule, and began to rise upon her side. Philip lost his presence of mind, which was at no time his most ready attribute. The mule yielded to the weight of the current, and as the rider was not attentive to keep her head turned up the river, she drifted downward, lost the ford and her footing at once, and began to swim with her head down the stream. And what was sufficiently strange, at the same moment, notwithstanding the extreme peril, the damsel began to sing, thereby increasing, if anything could increase, the bodily fear of the worthy sacristan. Merrily swim we, the moon shines bright both current and ripple are dancing in light we have roused the night raven i heard him croak as we plashed along beneath the oak that flings its broad branches so far and so wide their shadows are dancing in the midst of the tide who wakens my nestlings the raven he said my beak shall ere morn in his blood be red for a blue swown corpse is a dainty meal and i'll have my share with the pike and the eel merrily swim we the moon shines bright there's a golden gleam on the distant height there's a silver shower on the alders dank and the drooping willows that wave on the bank i see the abbey both turret and tower it is all astir for the vesper hour the monks for the chapel are leaving each cell but where's father philip should toll the bell merrily swim we the moon shines bright downward we drift through shadow and light under yon rock the eddies sleep calm and silent dark and deep the kelpie has risen from the fathomless pool he has lighted his candle of death and of duel look father look and you'll laugh to see how he gapes and glares with his eyes on thee good luck to your fishing whom watch ye to-night a man of mean or a man of might is it layman or priest that must float in your cove, Or lover who crosses to visit his love? Hark! heard ye the Kelpie reply as we passed, God's blessing on the warder, he locked the bridge fast. All that come to my cove are sunk, priest or layman, lover or monk. How long the damsel might have continued to sing, Or where the terrified monk's journey might have ended, is uncertain as she sung the last stanza they arrived at or rather in a broad tranquil sheet of water caused by a strong weir or dam-head running across the river which dashed in a broad cataract over the barrier the mule whether from choice or influenced by the suction of the current made towards the cut intended to supply the convent mills and entered it half swimming half wading and pitching the unlucky monk to and fro in the saddle at a fearful rate as his person flew hither and thither, his garment became loose, and in an effort to retain it his hand lighted on the volume of the Lady of Avenal which was in his bosom. No sooner had he grasped it, than his companion pitched him out of the saddle into the stream, where still keeping her hand on his collar, she gave him two or three good souses in the watery fluid, so as to ensure that every other part of him had its share of wetting, and then quitted her hold, when he was so near the side, that by a slight effort, of a great one he was incapable he might scramble on shore this accordingly he accomplished and turning his eyes to see what had become of his extraordinary companion she was nowhere to be seen but still he heard as if from the surface of the river and mixing with the noise of the water breaking over the dam head a fragment of her wild song which seemed to run thus landed landed the black book hath won else you had seen berwick with morning sun Sain ye, and save ye, and blithe mought ye be, for seldom they land that go swimming with me. The ecstasy of the monk's terror could be endured no longer. His head grew dizzy, and after staggering a few steps onward and running himself against a wall, he sunk down in a state of insensibility. End of chapter 5 Part B